Okay, let's um, let's make a start. Those of you on Zoom, can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? You're not on Zoom, Pete, but thanks for playing. Are we getting thumbs up? Oh, okay. No one had the camera on, so you couldn't tell. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Thank you, Zoomers. Great. Well, welcome. Really nice to see you. Uh, I'm Simon, one of the leaders here at the church, and it's great to have you with us tonight as we continue our series. What we're doing is we're taking some of the uh, New Testament uh, names and references uh, of Jesus uh, and trying to understand why he is called the son of David or the son of Abraham or the last Adam uh, or um, the true Israel or the temple of God as we're looking at this evening and tracing that theme all the way through the Bible uh, from the beginning to the end uh, to try and understand more of the Lord Jesus. All of these things are not um, to increase our knowledge, although I hope it does that. Uh, it is to uh, increase our love for the Lord Jesus, to increase his vision in our hearts and in our minds uh, as we see just how central he is to every single page of scripture, including the pages that Becky Barnes rips. You get a special prize if you find that Bible. <laughs> I'm making the most well I can because she's going to be excommunicated when Liverpool win lots of trophies. So... As are you. So many Liverpool fans in this church. Um, anyway, focus. Right, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get going. Not tonight, Julian, no. You really don't want me to sing. No, we're not going to sing tonight. I'm sorry, there's, there's no singing and there's no screen. Good job there's coffee, or else... Uh, although I really would be kicked out. I'd be excommunicated then. But I am going to pray. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for how it uh, illuminates our path and points us to Christ. But we thank you most of all for our dear Savior. We thank you that you have shown us how much you love us by sending the Lord Jesus. And thank you that through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension to your right hand, we can know you, we can know salvation, and we can know that our hope and our future is secure in you. Father, help us to understand more of him tonight and help us to love him more by your spirit to thrill our hearts uh, as we dig into your words but i thank you for my brothers and sisters thank you for the encouragement they are to me thank you for their desire to get into your word and i pray that we would be uh, alert and focused on you tonight for we ask it in the name of your precious son the lord jesus amen so as we've done in previous times we're going to be skipping all over um the bible um, the sheet that you've got has got um, all the references uh, and this will be, it is recorded and will be available as a podcast if you want to go back. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, I speak quickly anyway. When I get excited, which I do about this, I speak even more quickly, which means we'll definitely be done on time, but you might not hear every word. So, um, and nobody has yet, but feel free to interrupt and to ask questions. Um, but I normally go on till about a minute before we're due to finish and then a minute after, so there's no time. Anyway, turn with me to page 1065, John chapter 2. We're going to begin a series in John's Gospel um, uh, this Sunday. Neil is going to take us through the wonderful prologue in chapter 1. Uh, but we're going to be halfway through uh, chapter 2, which I had a look and you're doing. So you can um, correct everything. 
But Jesus has um, come to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. And um, as is usual, he's getting under the skin of um, the religious authorities. So chapter 2 and verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So what does it mean? Why does Jesus compare himself to the temple? Why does he describe himself as the temple? And what's going on here is that John is helping us to see that there is both a shadow and a reality going on in this encounter in the temple. The thing we see first is the temple, the physical building. We see in verses 14 to 17 that we're at the place that is the center of religious life for the Jews. We're in the city that is the centerpiece of everything they're doing. Jerusalem is where the whole world revolves around as far as the Jew is concerned. And if the world revolves around Jerusalem, then Jerusalem revolves around the temple. It is the central place. And so Jesus comes in and clearly they're upset by what he's doing. They say, don't they? What, what sign can you prove your authority to do all this? If you're going to come in and raise havoc in the center of our life, what are you going to do? Well, what Jesus says is that these bricks and mortar around you, this splendor, this building, central as it is, is only a shadow. It was only ever supposed to be a shadow. And he says that everything that the temple is, is actually about him. Everything you know about the temple, all of the history, everything that comes into your mind and your heart when you think of the temple, actually, you're supposed to think that of me. But then he says something really interesting. Oh, sorry, John says something interesting in verse 22. Having told us the temple he was spoken of was his body, that's the shadow, the temple structure. The reality is that Jesus is the temple. He then says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. What's going on there? Well, John is telling us that the disciples realized that the Old Testament should have made them think that Jesus was going to be the temple. The Old Testament should have led them to believe that the temple, this grand building that they knew of, was only a shadow and was pointing towards something or someone much more of a reality than this building was. And so, as we do in every single one of these, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So come back with me to Genesis chapter 1, as we ask the very small, inconsequential question, what is the point of the universe? I want to give you a bit of an insight into uh, a temple in the ancient Near East, the ancient Middle East, the temples of all of the 
um, the religions, all of these ancient religions. The purpose of the temple was to bring the worshipper into the presence of God. So you would come into the temple and outside the temple would all be normal and it's fine. But you come into the temple and the first thing you'd be greeted with was something that reminded you of the world in which you live. There may be something, the way it was decorated would remind you of, of trees and forests, so that kind of thing. And as you got further into the temple, it would then take you up a level and it would be to do with um, the sky. And you might see things that connected to the sun and to the moon and to things that go on in, you might see some birds flying around, um, only pictures of them, uh, up on the sides because you're, you're heading upwards towards where God is. Then you go further into the, tem into the temple and you'd be greeted with something that looked a bit like space and you'd see the stars and you're moving from where you are and you're moving up and up and up until at the very center of the temple, there'll be the place where you would meet with your God, capital G, small g, it doesn't really matter. You would go on that journey. So worshiper would go from where they are into the presence of God and would be able to be blessed by their great gods. What's going on in Genesis chapter one? Why has Genesis chapter one been written and structured the way that it has? Some of you will be familiar with the idea that uh, as the, uh, the days are described, that days one and four, are connected together. Days two and five are connected and days three and six are connected. The first three, one, two, and three, they set up a part of the cosmos. And then four, five, and six, they fill the equivalent one. But what's going on? Have a look at day one and day four. So in day one, verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then on day four, in verse 14, God creates the sun and the moon, the lights to govern. So he's created the sky and the heavens, and then he has populated them. So what do we see at the beginning? What's the first stage? Well, it's the heavens. It is the great sky above the cosmos. What do we see on day two and day five? Well, on day two, God separates the, uh, the sky from the sea. So we've gone from the kind of cosmic heights to the more earthy heights. We've got um, the sky that we can see during the day and the sea that um, is separated from the land. And then again in day five, he fills the sky with birds and the sea with uh, fish and aquatic life. Then what do we see on days three and six? Well, on day three, we see the land. And on day six, he fills the land. So what's going on? I think the writer is wanting us to see that what's talking here is temple language. That what is happening is that we're being shown that the universe is the temple of God. But what's different from all the temples that humanity creates is that rather than the temple being how I get to God, this temple is how God comes down to his people. So instead of being, we're going to start at the bottom and then go to the middle and then go to the top, this starts at the top comes down to the middle, and then comes down to the land. Genesis 1 is showing us that the point of the universe is to be a temple where the glory of God is seen, where God comes down to delight in his people. So what is this temple like? Well, we can see it's got lots of things to do with P. I was quite pleased when they came out, although I forgot one. Uh, so that comes at the end. So it, it, the point of this temple is it's a place of plenty. 
We can see that Genesis 1 and verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. The word team is a, is a word of plenty. Verse 22, it talks about fill and increase. Again, in 28, it talks about fill and increase. There is a purpose. Verse 1 and verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. There is a purpose within this temple. Displaying the glory of God uh, gives humanity purpose. Um, that little verse in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 11, you don't know, it says this, uh, talking about um, the purpose of creation. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was the purpose within this temple, to stretch out the boundaries of the temple so that the whole Creation was covered with the glory of God. It's a place of prosperity. Look at chapter 2 and verses 10 to 12. A river water in the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into the four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. There are precious stones. There is great prosperity in this temple. There is presence. God is there. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This man that he had made, the Lord took him and placed him in this beautiful garden. Uh, the presence of God was there. There was protection. Again, uh, in that verse, that verse, we looked at this when we looked at Jesus as the last Adam. When it talks about how Adam is to work it and take care of it, it is priestly language. We won't turn to it, but you compare it with 1 Chronicles 23. It's the same Hebrew words used of the priests. They are to guard and to protect uh, the, the, the temple. Uh, and that's what's going on here. There is purity in this temple. Chapter 2, verse 16, 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There is a need to be pure, a need to follow who the Lord is. These two things are um, connected. What should Adam have done when confronted with the serpent? He should have taken it to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said to the Lord, what am I supposed to do? But he took matters into his own hand, and we know what happens next. And then one that I noticed after I printed these sheets, which is quite annoying, is that there is peace. Uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There is this glorious and wonderful peace that is in this wonderful temple. This is his temple. All of these things are from God. The plenty, the purpose, the prosperity, the presence, the protection, the purity, the peace. All of these things find their root and their origin in the God who fills the temple. The purpose of the universe is to display the glory of God. And he is going to use this creation to dwell with his people, to live with those that he has made, those who are made in his image, right at the center of this creation is an image of the God who made it. And there they are at the center. Which makes the devastation of chapter three all the more horrible, all the more terrible. That there is this glorious creation, this temple where God and humanity dwell together and they take it all and they throw it back in his face. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They believe they have a different purpose. They think they can find prosperity outside of what God has said. They don't live up to the protection they've been given. They abandon the purity. They look at the plenty and say, I want more. And they completely disturb the peace. And we get to chapter 3 and verse 28. 
there aren't 28 verses. Uh, verse 23. I've written some more to Genesis. I thought I'd uh, take it upon myself. That should be 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Everything that is there, everything we see, all of this plenty, all of this delight in these first two chapters. And Adam is told, go. He is banished. He is banished. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam, this is not your home anymore. The intimate communion you had with the Lord, the presence that you enjoyed, that is now at an end. It is not going to happen anymore. And so the big question of the Old Testament is how can God, who has made these people, who has set his love upon them, does he just have to abandon the project? Does he have to say to the snake, to the serpent, you've won? Because either, basically, God seems to have two options. That either he just ignores that little bit of rebellion and keeps hanging out with Adam and Eve, or he just wipes out Adam and Eve, and this pinnacle of his creation is an absolute failure. They're the only options the serpent seems to have left God with. It's the genius of what Satan does. And so the big question of the Old Testament is, how can a holy God live with unholy people? How can we get back to Eden? How can we once again have humanity dwelling within the temple of God? The temple is the place where God reveals his glory. How can it be that humanity can be there once again? Or is it going to be permanently that humanity will only display shame rather than display God's glory? And so as the story begins, as we begin this long, long journey that will begin to answer that question, we get some early hints. The very um, next chapter, Genesis chapter four, we're familiar with the story of Cain and of Abel. Genesis chapter four and verse three, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor it seems that somehow you can be in the presence of God when there is a sacrificial offering if you look at all that you have and sacrificially you offer the best of it to God I think that's what Cain didn't do he just gave just random bits but Abel brought what was best so there's a sacrificial offering that begins to help us understand what it means to be in the presence of God look at Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21 when Enoch could live 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Twice we get that phrase, walked faithfully. That if there is a faithfulness to the Lord, if there is a desire to, to resubmit to him, then somehow it seems that presence is allowed through that. If there is faithfulness, then there can be communion with the Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 8, the beginning of the account of Noah. The wickedness of humanity is explained by uh, the Lord. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, there are hints here that when the Lord acts in favor, when he acts in, in New Testament language in grace, then people can know the presence of God. We've got sacrificial offerings. We've got faithful walking. We've got the favor of God. But all of these things are a little bit um, nebulous, a bit 
disparate, a bit kind of unconnected. There's no, there's no center. There's nothing really that we can physically hold on to. Ah, this is how an unholy people can live with a holy God. We need, we need a center. We need something that we can um, hang our hat on. And so in the early parts of the Old Testament, uh, the two hinges, the two big things that define what uh, the story of the Old Testament is are the great promise and the great rescue. Flick over to Genesis chapter 12, page 13. This foundational promise, Neil mentioned it on Sunday evening. I think every time we've come back to this uh, promise, the Lord begins to lay out how he's going to answer this question, how he is going to undo uh, the problem that humanity has caused by their rebellion. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord says to Abraham that in your family, blessing is going to come. Now, what is the great blessing that's been lost in Eden? Well, it's the presence of God. And so what is really significant is that he says in verse one, that you're to go to a land that I will show you. That just as the Lord God took Adam and placed him in the garden. So now he is going to take Abraham and his descendants and he's going to place them in a land. And this will be a land of blessing, a land of promise, the promised land. And so we're getting these early ideas, these early hints, these early thoughts that this land that Abraham is to go to is going to be a place of blessing. Is this the place where God is going to dwell with his people? Is this the place that's going to be the new Eden? The place where the, the curses will be undone and blessing uh, as we see here, is going to be seen. And so we see this outworked as the promise transfers to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, and Jacob has his um, 12 sons. And um, through Joseph, they end up in, in Egypt. Uh, Exodus starts and the people have grown, but are under slavery. And so we come to the great salvation act of the Old Testament. As the people are slaves in Egypt, they're nowhere near this land that God has promised to Abraham. And so God says to Moses, I want you to call the people out and the end goal is going to be the promised land. But before you get to the promised land, there's going to be a stop off on the way. Exodus chapter three and verse 12, 60, page 60. God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush and is calling him, is commissioning him to go and rescue his people. And Moses is doing his utmost to get out of it. Um, but isn't going, isn't going very well. And God says to, um, to Moses in verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This isn't the land yet, but this is a mountain. And we're going to worship God on the mountain. We're going to meet with the God, the God who we see, who Moses kind of sees and hears through a burning bush. It seems the people are going to commune with God on this mountain. And as they head out, they come out of Egypt uh, through the Passover and turn to chapter 15. They come out of Egypt and Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them. So you know the story well. And they stand on the, uh, the, beat, the banks of the, the Red Sea and they've got the sea in front of them and they've got the um, oncoming armies in the background. And they're stuffed. And that's a technical term. And the Lord says to Moses, hold out your staff, and he parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry land, and it comes back, and the water comes back and drowns them. And in chapter 14, 
uh, 13 and the 13 and 14, we get the kind of the, the account of what happens. And then in 15, we get this poetic song uh, that uh, sings about uh, what happened in that moment uh, using really colourful and uh, poetic language. Look at chapter 15 and verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. What was the purpose of coming out of Egypt? It was to come to the place where God lives. They're going to be once again in the place where God lives. Uh, look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. Can you sense the excitement? The people are going to come out of Egypt where they were slaves and they're going to be back in the place where the Lord is. This is fantastic. The excitement of getting to this mountain where God has made his home and where we get to live with him. This is fantastic. God is going to dwell with his people again. And so, and don't get too excited. They're already on the second page. We're going to slow down a bit. And so we have this movement throughout the Old Testament from mountain to tabernacle to temple. Because unfortunately, when we get to the mountain, and that's just, oh, all these typos, that's just Exodus 20 and Exodus 2. By the time we get to the mountain, we realize that all that we learn about God, sorry, that's irreverent, I don't mean that. What we learn about God is not his intimate presence, but his holiness. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. So Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the very heart of the law, the bit that sums up everything that God is to say to his people. This is fantastic. God has revealed himself. We're in the presence of, this is brilliant. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. We've come out of Egypt. We've come out of slavery. We are God's firstborn son rescued at the precious blood of the lamb that has been applied to the doorpost. We've come to be with the Lord. And yet we can't be anywhere near him. In fact, later it says that even the animals can't touch the base of the mountain or they will die. The mountain reveals that God is holy. And still, we can't be anywhere near him. There is one man, this mediator, who seems to be able to be in the presence of God, but everybody else, absolutely terrified. Being in the presence of God doesn't bring comfort, doesn't bring security, doesn't bring peace. It brings fear, it brings terror, because they see just who God is. And so they see themselves. If I was to ask you, what's the main feature, the main part of the book of Exodus? You might say, well, the clue's in the title. And I would say, yes, that's true. But what gets the most airtime in Exodus? Well, actually, it's the tabernacle. You see, what happens is that God um, says to Moses, actually, there does need to be some... Um, distance between the people and me because of this problem a holy god can't dwell with unholy people but what i'm going to do is i'm going to give you a way in which you can kind of be in my presence and so he talks about the tabernacle basically the tent 
And when you read through Exodus, maybe you're doing Bible in a year and you get through Genesis, and you get through the first half of Exodus, and this is good stuff, this, I can, I can cope with this. And then you get to the tabernacle and there seems to be a lot of detail. It seems to be big on soft furnishings and big on um, skilled craftsmen. Maybe James thinks it's great because it's all about this woodwork and all that. So, but the rest of us just think, what is going on? And then it finishes, and then we get a little bit of hiatus. And then they go as again when it says, this is what you're supposed to do. And then they say, this is how you did it. But what is it that's going on? Well, the tabernacle is to tell us how we're going to solve this problem, how God is going to solve this problem. Turn with me to Exodus 25, page 83. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Okay, we're familiar with that, that there needs to be an offering to come into the presence of God. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Again, kind of sacrificial. Again, this, this faithful walking with the Lord, uh, this desire to, to know his favor. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod, and the breastpiece. As you're reading this, you're supposed to be thinking about Eden. You're supposed to be thinking about the abundance, and the beauty, and the value the richness, the prosperity of Eden. You're supposed to be thinking about these things. And then just to make it completely obvious, in case we missed it, verse eight, then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. What do we see in Eden? We see that there is this temple, the universe, made by God so that God can bless his people. And so what do we see here? Well, we see basically an act of, how might I put it, new creation, where God is saying, well, we're going to make something new, do it exactly the way I tell you to, because this is my tent, this is my tabernacle, and once it's made, I'm going to come and dwell with you once again. We're going to, together, with my instructions, we're going to make this little new Eden that will be a taste of what it's like. Uh, Verse 22, uh, after he begins to talk about the ark, the ark of the covenant, this, this solid box uh, that is going to be the center of uh, the tabernacle. Verse 21, place the cover. This is the, the mercy seat, the, the atonement cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. We've got this this tent, and um, the tent, as the Lord says in verse 8, is going to be where I'm going to dwell with my people. But there's going to be one special point right in the heart of the tent. There's going to be this box, this ark, and inside is going to be the law, the great revelation of God to his people. And there's going to be two cherubim, two um, angels, um, made out of um, expensive material, uh, resting on top of the, uh, the ark. And in the center of that is going to be the place where I'm going to meet with uh, you. You're going to, atonement will be made and God will dwell with his people right at the heart. God is going to live with his people. Flick over to um, chapter 26. And verse 32. Sorry, verse 31. You're going to come into the, the, the tabernacle and again, like we touched on at the beginning, there's going to be indications at the edge about how you're coming from the world that you know, and you're going to come in and you're going to see 
um, you're going to be kind of moved on this journey as if you're coming towards um, where the Lord is. And then as you come towards the center, there's going to be a huge, massive curtain. Verse 31, make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side, right in the heart of the tabernacle, this most holy place. This is where the ark is going to go. This is where the place is where God is going to meet with his people in the most holy place. You're going to have the outer bit of the tabernacle. Then you're going to go into the holy place. Then you're going to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. You're going to say something with strength in Hebrew. You say it twice, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the holy of holies, the song of songs. This is the place where God is going to dwell with his people. What do we find? What is it that's going on in here? Take me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Page 432. David, who wanted to build the temple the next stage on from the tabernacle, but uh, didn't. Um, Chapter 28 and verse two. King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. You see what David says? He says, here is the Ark, Here is the place where God meets with his people, cherubim either side, the atonement cover in the middle. And this is the footstool of God. What is he saying? He is saying that God sits on his throne in heaven. And the ark here is his footstool. So what's going on in the center of the Holy of Holies? What's happening is that heaven and earth are overlapped. This is the one place in the whole cosmos where the reality of earth and the reality of heaven overlap. Because of sin, everywhere else in the cosmos, they are separate. The presence of God is there, but not in the way that it is in heaven. And so in the center of the tabernacle, we see the footstool of God, that basically he has sat on his throne and his feet, if I can say this reverently, come down into the Holy of Holies. Why do you think it is that when Isaiah sees the Lord in chapter 6, he says, I saw the train of his robe because God can't fit in that space but his feet can and so we see this place where heaven and earth overlap and that's how God can dwell with his people because heaven and earth heaven the place where God is and earth the place where people are somehow managed to merge in this one little place at the center of the tabernacle heaven and earth coming together and so Exodus gives instructions of how to build the tabernacle. And then as it carries on into the 30s and 40s of Exodus, we see the tabernacle being set up. But as the tabernacle is finished, all it does is accents the problem that we've had from the start. Well, not quite the start, from chapter 3. Chapter 40 and verse 34, page 101. 
The tabernacle is finished. Everything has been done according to the plans of the Lord. We get this little verse at the end of verse, the end of verse 33. And so Moses finished the work, taking credit for everybody else, but that's all right. We don't mind. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Praise the Lord, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Ah, Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even the man who could go up the mountain can't get into the tabernacle because God is too holy because his glory has descended and humanity can't be in his presence. And so turn the page and get to the beginning of Leviticus we read this, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Where's God? He's inside the tabernacle. Where's Moses? He's outside the tabernacle. Even the great mediator of God's people is still out of the presence of the Lord. Still, we're in the third book of the Bible. We still can't answer this question of how a holy God can live in close intimacy with unholy people. But what we see over what I guarantee is a more glorious book than you give it credit for, we see within Leviticus that the problem is being addressed. We haven't got time to do an overview of Leviticus. We'll do that one time. But as you go through Leviticus, you begin to understand how it can be that a holy God can live with his people. As we look at offerings and we look at priests and we look at cleanliness and we look at atonement, all of these things happen so that... By the time we get to Numbers, but you wish it was that quick in the Bible of the year, as we get to Numbers, page 133, how does Numbers begin? The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Not from the tent of meeting, but in the tent of meeting. What has Leviticus done? It's got Moses inside. There's an overview of the book of Leviticus. It got Moses inside the tent. Do you see the difference? That whatever it is that's going on in Leviticus, and you have to read it to work out what that is, it's got Moses from from to in. And so the problem seems to be addressed. And by the time we get to numbers, it seems that the problem has been answered. Moses is in there. Problem is, he's the only one. Nobody else is in there. And still, still, we haven't got a deep, a full answer to this question. How can a holy God live with unholy people? And so as you go through numbers and the people are counted and more law is given and we come to Deuteronomy and the law is given again and the people reach the edge of the promised land. We're going to get to Canaan. It's going to be great. We're going to be in the land. We're going to have the tabernacle. Everything will be brilliant. And so we get into to Joshua. And Joshua is all about Psalm 111, verse 6, page 614. It can be quite troubling reading Joshua and all the fighting but what's going on page 614 psalm 111 verse 6 he has shown his people the power of his work giving them the lands of other people what's going on well we need to see the time when the glory of god covers the world covers the earth like the glory like the, the waters cover the sea Jess read from Isaiah 40 on Sunday morning. Verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It's the same word, 
that as far as God is concerned, the heavens, this whole universe, is a tent, is a tabernacle for him to dwell in. And so it needs to be that all that is evil and all that is anti-God, we need the purity, to be purged so that God can dwell with his people. That's what Joshua is about. It's about cleansing the land, getting it ready so that God can live with his people. The Joshua is followed by judges, which shows, which demonstrates to us that the tabernacle is not the answer to the human heart. Israel are in the land and they have the tabernacle. And yet Judges is devastating. Judges breaks my heart more than Joshua. It troubles me more than the book of Joshua. Judges, to me, is the most devastating book in the Bible. I, I weep when I read Judges. It is heartbreaking. But it shows the tabernacle isn't the answer to the human heart. That we've gone from the mountain, and we've seen that God is holy, and we've gone to the, the tabernacle, and we've seen that God is here. He's, he's in the neighborhood. But it still isn't the answer. We're still not close enough. We still haven't got back to what we had in Eden. And so, as we get to the end of Judges, and we see... Uh, the beautiful Ruth, we come to the beginning of Samuel and we, we meet Samuel, who is the last of the judges, the last in a line of um, these judges. He didn't expect to be. He thought his sons were going to take over. But instead, the people come and say, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else. Um, and we're going to jump over a lot because we're going to do kingship on the evening of the, um, the Jubilee Sunday. So we're going to skip over a lot of that. But um, what this leads to is an important chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as God makes a promise to David, the great King David, um, Israel's finest king. And David has this um, desire. He doesn't like the fact that he lives in this really nice palace and God lives in a tent. He doesn't think that's right. And so he says to God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a glorious temple, which will take over from the tabernacle. And we'll put the ark in the middle and it'll be much more befitting who you are. And God says, no, you're not. Your son's going to do that, but I'm going to do something even better with you. And that's what we're going to look at uh, in a month's time. So we're not going to get into that now. But he says, your son is going to build this temple. And so David has lots of sons, unfortunately. Um, not that lots of sons are bad, but from lots of different women, it is bad. Um, but we come through uh, Solomon to 1 Kings chapter 5. And once again, for all of us who were big fans of the latter chapters of Exodus, we get it again in chapters five, six, and seven, um, where we get this intimate detail about the building of the temple. Uh, and we get lots of measurements and lots of buildings and lots of um, tools, lots of wood. Uh, James is happy again. Uh, lots of instructions as to how these things are uh, to be built. And it goes on and on and on and on, similar way to the tabernacle. And again, we've got this temple being built that is going to replace the tabernacle and be far more grand and far more befitting the great God of the universe. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. So the temple has been finished. Solomon has finished his work and the Ark of the Covenant, the centerpiece, the footstool of God, which will go right in the Holy of Holies, which has been remade in the, um, at the temple, is being brought to uh, its place. Verse 12, all the Levites who are musicians, Asaph, Heman, great guy, 
Uh, Jonathan and their sons and relatives, there's a she-ra as well uh, elsewhere in the Bible, they get everywhere, uh, on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They're accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeteers and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Here it is. The Shekinah glory of God descends and envelops this glorious temple. And here God is at home. He has made his home on earth in this glorious building, in this wonderful temple that is befitting of the God who made the entire universe. He's here. He's home. He is with his people. But again, the human heart remains the problem. Now, this is spoiler alert if you don't know how our series in Two Kings is going to end. So if you really want it to be a surprise, then stick your fingers in your ears now. But we saw on Sunday evening, didn't we, the recap of how Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, how they came and uh, took over Samaria. Well, not long later, uh, the Babylonians come to do exactly the same for um, Judah in Jerusalem. And 2 Kings chapter 25 on page 397, chapter 25 and verse 9. Everything that has happened, that the glory of God that is seen in the temple. And we read this devastating verse, 25 verse 9. He, that's Nebuchadnezzar, set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. God's temple is on fire. The place where God is to dwell with his people is on fire. Verse 21, there at Ribla in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. We have this land of promise where God will dwell with his people. We have this building, this temple, this place where heaven and earth touch each other so that God can dwell with his people. The temple's on fire, it's been destroyed. And the people have been taken away from the land. We seem further than ever to be able to answer the question, how can a holy God live with unholy people? And as with all of these things, the faithful Jew who is following what's going on, who is looking at the history and thinking about the future, is longing for what he's seen to be there, but better. So when he learns about Adam, who was there at the beginning, he longs for, for an Adam, but a better one. When, it, when he looks at the kings around him, he, he longs for a good king, but a, a better king, a perfect king. When he learns and he hears all the stories about what happened in Egypt, in the Exodus, he longs for a better salvation. And as maybe he stands and he sees the temple on fire, and he looks back and again, he sees all that was true of the tabernacle and of the temple. And he says, surely this is a good thing. Surely it is right that we should long for the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, to live with us. But we just need a better temple. We just need something that's even better than what we've seen because it's now gone up in flames. And so the Old Testament ends with these two things, a promise of a greater temple and a yearning for something better. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 40. Eight seven three. Eight seven two. 
Ezekiel is full of uh, apocalyptic visions. You, you kind of read bits of Ezekiel like you read um, Revelation. In fact, reading Ezekiel helps you read uh, Revelation. And back in um, chapter 10, you don't need to, um, to read it. Uh, Ezekiel has a vision where he sees the temple and he sees the glory of God in the center of the temple. Now, the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. Right at the center is the cloud, the glory of God. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim. Atonement, see, ark rose from beneath the cherubim, moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. See, God has gone from the most holy place in the holy place and he's moved and he's moved to the outer bit of the temple. Now he still fills that. There's still glory there, but he's moved. Verse 18 of chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. What has happened? The glory of the Lord, excuse me, has left the temple. It is now simply a building. At every stage, it's really important not to equate the temple with the building that we're currently in. There is a world of difference between the temple and a church building. But at this moment, they're exactly the same. They're just buildings. A bit more money's been bent on the other one, but they're just buildings. But Ezekiel has this glorious vision in chapter 40 to the end of the book in verse 48 of a new temple, of a rebuilt temple. And it is a glorious, glorious thing. Again, there's so much detail, uh, so much input from the Lord as to what is to happen. Turn to chapter 43. Here is the glorious thing about this new temple, this temple that is prophesied, this temple that is promised at some point in the future, 43 and verse 4, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of God is back. This renewed temple, this new temple that has been built is the place where God's glory is once again seen. Turn to chapter 47. There's a river that comes out of this temple from the, the place where the temple is, the place where God's glory is seen. There's now this river that comes out. Uh, verse 9, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. There's a river that flows out from God's presence that brings life and abundance and joy. What a hope this is. But the greatest of all hopes is the very last verse in the book. Turn over to Ezekiel 48. Verse 35, the distance all around will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. This great hope that we have of this renewed temple, of this renewed uh, vision of the glory of God, it's summed up in those four words, two in the Hebrew, the Lord is there. That's what we want. We want to get back to Eden. Because the Lord is there. There's a promise of a greater temple, of something, maybe someone we don't know yet, to be greater than all that is invested in the temple in the Old Testament. And a yearning for something better. Because when we come to the beginning of Ezra, the exiles in Babylon are sent home. 
They're allowed to go back to Jerusalem and they're allowed duh, 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 to start rebuilding the temple. And so they begin. Ezra chapter 3, page 474. They've rebuilt the altar and they rebuild the temple. It doesn't quite go according to plan. Uh, chapter t- verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, sorry, the priests with their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as they prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Why were those guys so upset? Well, Haggai tells us, who's a prophet at the time, the part of it was that it wasn't as impressive. The foundations weren't quite as good. But to weep aloud just because it's not quite the same, maybe it doesn't go all the way. What's going on? Well, let me remind you of 2 Chronicles chapter 5. There are the priests, there are all the instruments, the trumpets, the cymbals, all of the trumpets, and they sang, he is good, his love endures forever. What happens in Ezra? All of those things are the same. They sing, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. What happened in 2 Chronicles? And the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. What happens in Ezra? Nothing. Nothing. We've done everything right. We're back in the land. We're back rebuilding the temple. We've said the same words. The glory of the Lord is still departed. We don't know the glory of the Lord like we would. We're back from from exile. And so the wait continues. The hope that we have that God will restore the fortunes of his people. That God will once again come and live with his people. That the great temple of the universe will be restored, isn't seen. And then John, who doesn't waste his words, begins his gospel on page 1063. And again, this won't be a spoiler alert, even though Neil is going to preach this passage on Sunday. I'm sure you know this. Chapter 1 and verse 14, this incredible taking us back to the very beginning, and the beginning was the word, just magnifying our view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally in the Greek, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. What do we see when we see the Lord Jesus Christ? We see the tabernacle of God. We see the one who is coming to be the true tabernacle, to be the true temple, to show to us the presence of God himself in and amongst his people. How can an unholy God, oops, that was wrong. How can unholy people live with a holy God? Through Jesus. He is the holy God come to live with unholy people. And everything that we've seen in Eden, we see again. We see plenty. The wedding at Cana, and more wine than you ought to do with. And it was fantastic. It was brilliant wine. Apparently that's possible. We see purity as Jesus comes into the temple courts and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. We need to purify what's going on in here. We see prosperity in chapter 10 as 
Um, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. We see protection. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep need protecting, and the shepherd lays down his life for them. There is purpose. As at the end of the gospel, um, Jesus says to Peter, um, feed my sheep. I'm going to commission you to go and do the work that I uh, began. And we see peace tacked on the end, because I forgot about it while I was printing the sheet. Chapter 16 and verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We're seeing that Jesus is beginning to show us, to demonstrate to us that everything that was in Eden, everything that the tabernacle and the temple was supposed to be, we're seeing in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this particularly in the way that John puts together the account of his death and resurrection. We're familiar, aren't we, with the idea that when Jesus died, not the idea, the truth, that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was, was ripped in two. And suddenly the Holy of Holies, there was access so that humanity could go in and so that God could come out. The giant no entry sign was gone. But once that had happened, once the curtain had been parted, that bit of real estate in the center of the, um, the temple was no longer the Holy of Holies. It was back to being just a building again. So where was the Holy of Holies? Turn to John chapter 20, page 1089. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love the fact that John puts that in. He just wants to put, yeah, Peter, I was faster than you. Yeah, don't you start going, I'm quicker than you. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So at the beginning, John doesn't waste his words. So obviously there's some reason why we need to know that he's faster than Peter. But do you notice that he talks about the linen quite a lot? Three times in that he mentions the linen. Turn back with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, page 119. Leviticus 16 tells us about the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year in uh, Israelite life. It was the one day of the year when one person, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. You see, sin is so polluting. Sin causes such a problem that even the Holy of Holies could be corrupted. And so in this one glorious day of the year, um, the priest, having gone through so much ritual, would take with him uh, the blood of a sacrificed lamb would go into the center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and would splatter the blood across the atonement cover, across the ark, across the cherubim, and would make atonement for the people and would cleanse it so that the Lord could come again and dwell with his people. Chapter 16 and verse 23. 
Then Aaron, so the high priest, the, the, the prototype, the first high priest, is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. What's the evidence to the people that the high priest has gone into the Holy of Holies and come out again having made atonement? What's the evidence that atonement, that salvation has been won for the people? It's the linen lying on the floor. Because the priest can't come out. The priest is to take off the linen and to leave it right there. So in the Holy of Holies, there's going to be some linen lying there, which proves that the priest has done his job. Why does John want to draw attention to the linen that's lying in the empty tomb? Because the empty tomb is the Holy of Holies. The empty tomb is the center of this new um, temple that is going to spread and fill the universe. And how we know it's because we've got the linen lying there. Carry on, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Why do we need to know so much detail? Because we're to think of the Ark of the Covenant. We're to see the place where Jesus' body had been. And here we've got one angel and here we've got another angel. So what do we see in the middle? We see the mercy seat. We see the center of the Ark of the Covenant. Where is the most holy place? In the midst of the most holy room, in the midst of the most holy tent in the midst of the most holy region on earth it is the place between the two cherubim and here in the tomb in the holy of holies we see the lord jesus as the mercy seat as the atonement cover as the ark of the covenant as the place where god comes to dwell with his people we see in the empty tomb the place where new creation bursts out where the Holy of Holies isn't just confined to this one space, but begins to come. And the Holy of Holies not just sits in the empty tomb, but the Holy of Holies walks out. And suddenly the Holy of Holies is on the move because the Holy of Holies is the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 37. Oh, we don't turn to that. That was just the bit that said why the two were children with that. I forgot why I put it. But yeah, this is the place. So this holy place, this place of death, which has been made into this place of life, then births out. And we see the Lord Jesus stride out of the tomb. As new creation is now seen, as the glory of God is now able to be seen by all around. And so we see in John chapter 2. That John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. What do we know about the body of Christ? Well, we know, number one, that it's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But we know, number two, there's another group of people who are given the title, the body of Christ. It's his people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. When the day, sorry, beginning of chapter two, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. As we read those things, again, what are we supposed to think? When we know our Old Testament well, what are we supposed to think? We're to think about the descending of the glory of God upon the tabernacle, upon the mountain, upon the temple. 
But this time, instead of it being on a building or a tent or a mountain, it's on the people. And here is the river flowing out of Ezekiel's temple as the glory of God comes to individuals so that they can then go. And what we begin to see is that the glory of God is now not confined to one particular place, but it's now confined, confined to one particular body, but that body has many members and they begin to go. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The glory of God is now seen in the body of Christ, the church. And so we get these comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, page 1146. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Again, flick to chapter 6 and verse 19 or verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you know how mind-blowingly crazy that would sound to an Old Testament Jew? That you, that we together are the temple of God. That we are the place where God's glory is seen. We are the place where God lives on earth. Where does God live? Well, he lives in heaven. Where does God live? He lives in and with his people. The spirit of God has descended upon his people. And we live as spirit-filled, glory-displaying people who have the Lord Jesus to thank for that. We are the place where God's glory is seen. And we need to live like that. We live in that knowledge. We live in the understanding. And if people want to know what God is like, they look at us. Again, Neil brought the point out on Sunday evening that Israel just looked like the other nations. And they were even worse. They were so despicable, sacrificing their children. that people would look at Israel and say, if that's what your God is like, I want nothing to do with him. The people look at us and think, I want to know who that God is. I want to know what it is that fires you, that motivates you each day. I want to know what's different. Because you know the Lord. Because you know the one who's made all things, that you, that we are the temple. So often we get the, the wrong thing that is unique about what we do on a Sunday morning, and we think it's about the ritual. But there is no more important thing that happens in Headley Park ever than when we get together to worship. Not because we're special, but because we display the glory of God, because we, there's a glimpse of new creation. There is a glimpse of the Holy of Holies bursting out into this world. Because that's the future. And we're finally there, Roger. Roger doesn't like my Revelation maths, but we're going to see how this is a glorious thing. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. This is our hope. I want you to, I want you to imagine, I want you to, to grasp what it is that is our future. For those who are in Christ, this is the future and it is mind-blowing. The more that we get to know what's going on in the Old Testament, the more we understand the temple and the holiness that is on display, the more remarkable this is. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Again, it just seems we're in the middle of a building site, and it doesn't seem particularly relevant. Um, he prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple 
to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So we're talking about the Holy of Holies. This is the most holy place being built in the temple. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. So if you were allowed to go, if you were able to go without dying into the most holy place, as you went in, you basically look around, you'd be inside a cube. Uh, you can see there, it's 20 by 20 by 20. I'm in 1 Corinthians 8, though I'm looking. It's a cube, 20 by 20 by 20, and that's, that's the most holy place. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. We get this beautiful image of the New Jerusalem, God's people across all of space and time beautifully dressed for her husband in spotless white. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. We're there. This is how God's people can live with him through the Lord Jesus and all that he has won. And John gets taken on a guided tour around the New Jerusalem. Uh, and we see in verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. What is the new Jerusalem? What is the eternal city? What is the shape of new creation? It's a cube. It's a cube. Where will we spend all of eternity? In the Holy of Holies. We will spend all of eternity in the place where heaven and earth join together. We will spend all of eternity in the very presence of the holy God, who is the same God who meant I couldn't even touch the mountain because I will die just to be in his presence. And why does 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000 equal naught? Turn over the page to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Because I'm inside the Holy of Holy, 12,000 times 12,000, 12,000 equals naught. Because there is no temple. Because the whole cosmos, the whole of new creation is the most holy place, is the holy of holies. The future of all the unholy people who have been made holy through Christ is to live at the very heart of God's new creation. That because from the empty tomb, that glorious new creation power burst out in holiness that by the spirit, God's glory landed upon his people. And that because of his goodness and his grace, he keeps us to the end. Our future is to dwell fundamentally in his presence. There's no way out. And you won't want there to be. Because in the holy of holies, there is everything. There is presence, there is purity, there's purity, there's prosperity, there's protection, there's purpose, there's peace, and a whole lot more. Because Jesus was the temple. He is the temple. And everything he won is ours because of his great love to us. Let me pray. Our oh, gracious God, we, we thank you. We praise you for this incredible hope. That at the heart of who you are, is a desire to show love to unholy people. And we thank you that through the death of the Lord Jesus, through his rising in glory, we can know sins forgiven. We can know an end to our rebellion. 
And we can know the new life that means that our future is secure in the most holy place. Where once a year, one man would go in shaking with fear. So we will revel for eternity. Delighting in the holy God who has set his love upon his people. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to tabernacle amongst us, came to dwell with us. That you emptied yourself so that we may know such a glorious filling. Lord Jesus, we could do nothing but thank you and praise you and offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And just respond in gratitude that though the temple was destroyed, you raised it again in three days. Securing this glorious future for us. Father, give us a bigger vision of the Lord Jesus. And may we rejoice in who we are because of him. For we ask it in your name. Amen.